0: the war in ukraine update from kyiv podcast Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia and I'm pleased to be talking today with Joshua Rovner. Joshua is Associate Professor of International Service at the American University in Washington DC and Joshua focuses on issues of national intelligence, military strategy and US foreign policy. Joshua has a great book on these issues called Fixing the Facts, National Security and the Politics of Intelligence and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The role of intelligence in the conflict in Ukraine has been quite interesting to observe, so I'm very much looking forward to having a chat about some of these issues with Joshua today. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Joshua.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I was personally struck by the way in which, in the lead-up to the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, in particular, US and UK intelligence services seem to be broadcasting information about an impending invasion into the public domain main were you surprised by that and how much was that a break with previous practice of intelligence services
1: Sure. Well, it really was striking how much we heard from secret services before the war, especially the US and the British secret services are appearing in public and uh, leaders are speaking openly about their intelligence assessments, British intelligence tweeting daily summaries. I and mean, this all seemed quite peculiar for agencies who are work with secrets, right? To be so openly discussing what they believed was going to happen in, in Ukraine. And beyond... Beyond all that, there was this issue of open source intelligence playing a huge role. That In this war, unlike in the past, you have lots of commercial satellite images being shared. On social media, people are sharing images both before and during the war, so that we all have a, a what feels like a very close view of the conflict, and that all seems new and, and different. That said, this is not the first time that intelligence agencies have been used in public before the war to justify state action. Famously, before the Iraq War, the Bush administration used intelligence in public to make the case for going into Iraq. But even long before that, we have examples of leaders using intelligence. The United States used intelligence during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They used classified images of what was going on on the island in order to rally diplomatic support and to isolate the Soviet Union. So in that respect, this is not entirely new, right? We have experience with leaders using intelligence to rally coalitions together, much in the way that the US and Great Britain worked very hard before the war to rally Europe and other states in support of Ukraine and to isolate Russia and to isolate Putin.
0: Yep. So, in some ways, the principles are old, but the mechanisms are new, or the ways in which intelligence can be shared, and the type of intelligence like. Mm. When I was following those releases of information from, as you said, primarily US and British intelligence services, saying it's likely that Russia is going to try to undertake some sort of provocation in order to justify a full scale invasion of Ukraine, in the end, that didn't take place. They just went for the full scale invasion. But I was thinking at the time, did that actually change Russia's strategy or the way in which the early days of that invasion unfolded? And if we hadn't have had that intelligence, and let's say Russia had have carried out some sort of provocation as a pretext for invading, then the whole situation might have looked more murky to the international community. Like it might have looked like, well, we don't really know what's going on. Was it Ukraine that started it? Was it Russia that started it? So how much do you think that release of intelligence information into the public domain actually also shaped the way in which the full-scale invasion from Russia unfolded?
1: It's a great question because this was one of the, the more novel aspects of the way intelligence was used before the war. It's been called a, a pre that the US and the UK were releasing captured information on possible Russian prevarications. Mm -hmm. as a way of denying Putin the opportunity to shape opinion about the war and to deny him a pretext for war itself. So this prebuttal was very interesting as, as a diplomatic tool. It seems to have succeeded in rallying the coalition together. There have been some reports about um, negotiations in Europe, and not all of the countries were on the same page about whether war was likely and what to do in case of war. It seems as if the U.S. and Great Britain shared apparently very good intelligence with them that helped convince them to, to join together and to deny Russia the diplomatic pretext that it was looking for. right? What it wasn't able to do, as far as I can tell, is change Russian behavior in the slightest. Mm. Right? It, it, Russia had a plan in mind, uh, executed that plan, certainly wasn't deterred by these revelations of intelligence, just plowed into it right? in ways that were kind of astonishing, the way that Russia began the war. But it didn't seem to be affected at all by the loss of these prevarications that it was hoping for. So in this sense, the use of intelligence was a mixed success. It wasn't able to change Russian actions, but it was able, at least up to now, to help unify Europe against Russian aggression. And that's not nothing, right? I mean, Mm. European countries are taking a big risk here and are already paying a substantial price given their reliance on Russian energy supplies. So intelligence in that way proved a really powerful way of uniting countries together. That's a really good point. So not shifting
0: Russia's behavior, but galvanizing that response and making it potentially more rapid and more coherent. It's interesting you mention as well that whilst, you know, British intelligence services, US intelligence services were quite sure that Russia was planning to invade, there were other intelligence services, for example, some countries in Europe and you mentioned in a recent article for War on the Rocks that I'll also link to in the show notes that French and German intelligence were much slower to believe that an invasion was actually going to take place. We might think of intelligence gathering, information gathering as a purely didactic activity. Like you go, you get some information. Now you have mm. the information. Now you can release it or not release it. That's up to you. Whereas I'm sure that like any other human domain, it's much more complicated. There are more sort of human decisions that take place mm. along the way. So can you talk a bit more about how intelligence gathering actually intersects with the domestic domain, with domestic politics?
1: Sure. Well, one of the interesting aspects of coverage of the war has been the notion that there was so much information available to everybody that, in retrospect, Russia's invasion looks inevitable, right? That they had put a huge number of troops on the border and they had done a lot of preparation and they were assembling certain kinds of forces and it seemed like the writing was on the wall. But at the time, in February, there were a lot of very smart analysts who just weren't sure, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I was one of them. We were having discussions among my colleagues mm-hmm. and I, just, is, is it going to really happen this mm-hmm. time? And, and my thought was, yeah, probably about 60% sure, maybe 65%, but I gave myself a lot of wiggle room because the facts of the case could have been interpreted in a number of different ways. This Could have been another elaborate bluff just to keep Mm -hmm. Europe on edge and to keep the United States on edge. It could have been preparations for a much more limited kind of conflict in Donbass where Russia already had a kind of foothold with local supporters. What Russia actually did was really strategically unwise. Mm -hmm. And and the fact that it was so unwise, I think, was part of the reason why it was so surprising. This rapid invasion, this rapid push towards Kyiv, which for a lot of reasons fell apart. Really quickly. So the, the abundance of public information was not dispositive. Simply having at our disposal lots and lots of data made it difficult to predict what was actually going to happen. Now, what strikes me as interesting from an intelligence perspective, and I'm reading between the lines here, is that US and British intelligence were particularly confident in their assessments. You don't hmm. see that too, too often. Where they were quite sure about the timing of the the invasion, the nature of the invasion, and the place of the invasion, like how Russia was going to do it. And to me, what I infer from that is that they had unusually good access to Russian communications. Among other things, the possession of that information would help explain how they were able to convince European skeptics that, hey, actually a war is coming. This is not just a matter of of our interpretation of satellite imagery. We actually have much more specific information and we're willing to share it with you to help get you on board. But to your broader point about intelligence and domestic politics, the other puzzle in, in this case is not just why Western intelligence accurately predicted the invasion, but why Russia seems to have failed to predict the ferocity of the Ukrainian response. Mm. Russia invaded seemingly on the basis of some really bad assumptions that Ukraine was a house of cards, that it wouldn't be able to put up a serious military defense, that the country was so politically fractured that it couldn't possibly rally behind the government in Kyiv, that Europe was too fractured to put up any kind of unified response. All of these assumptions were badly, badly flawed. In the aftermath of the invasion, it was been reported that Russian <laughs> intelligence officials have been arrested, have been kicked out of their positions, that Putin was very angry at his intelligence. So the mis- mystery is why did they screw it up? Why did Russian intelligence analysts get it so wrong? I don't know the answer. This is going to be something that I suspect historians will puzzle over for a long time. But I'm guessing the answer is simply Vladimir Putin. As an authoritarian leader, as somebody who's very good at accumulating power and and ruling coercively at home, he doesn't create an environment which is very conducive to open discussion. Mm-hmm. Right? He had a, a vision of how the war was going to go, and he probably wasn't willing to, to hear bad news. Maybe nobody was willing to deliver bad news to him. I think that the politics in Russia made it hard for Russian intelligence to give what might we might call an objective assessment. I agree with you completely. I think also, you know, Putin just didn't let
0: in information that contradicted his objectives. I was also wondering, like I had this thought in my mind, in terms of that fundamental misunderstanding of other political regime types. So the way in which your own domestic context or your own regime type can colour how you view a situation. Like I was thinking maybe when they saw that President Zelensky had like 20% approval ratings, they thought, oh, clearly no one supports him. We can easily kick him out, but not accounting for the fact that, you know, I know in Australia, sometimes our political leaders end up with 30% approval. It doesn't mean that we're ready for regime change. <laughs> you know, we might be ready for a change of prime minister or a change of president. I wondered also if there was some fundamental misunderstanding of the way in which in a more democratic context, approval ratings can bounce up and down. And it doesn't mean you want to engage in full scale regime change.
1: Yeah. I mean, it strikes me as plausible, right? That they they might look at that number and say, well, everybody hates him. He's got mm-hmm. this tiny base of support. They won't mind if he's overthrown. And as you say, they seem to have just completely ignored the possibility of a rally effect. When you invade another country, people rally around their leadership in purely defensive move. One of the, the interesting failures of Russian operations early in the war is that they seem to abandon the whole field of information operation. And Ukraine, played it masterfully. From the start, Ukraine was on top of the narrative, and Russia never responded effectively to that. They just looked bumbling and ham-fisted throughout. Russia never attempted to seriously control communications in the country. They never seriously tried to stop Ukraine from broadcasting internationally or getting its its message out. And this is really puzzling, because if you're going to try to execute what's essentially an externally sponsored coup d'etat, the first thing you have to do is to control the information environment. You have to control what information is circulating in the country and going out. It all just smacks of a regime which was utterly overconfident and not really prepared for for the early setbacks that it faced.
0: And maybe, yeah, it doesn't have in some ways the capability or the sophistication. Like I know that they have certainly tried to control the information environment once they've managed to go in with their troops and occupy, for example, in Mariupol or in other cities where Russia has managed to gain some control on the ground, then they'll start to control the information environment. But there wasn't really any of that on a larger scale across the whole of Ukrainian territory. I mean,
1: it's a really important important point. Because if you compare what Russia tried to achieve at the start in Kyiv versus what they're doing now, it's two utterly different wars. I mean, the Mm -hmm. first war was supposed to be a rapid, low cost, overthrow of the regime. And in that kind of operation, control of information is critically important. Now you compare that to what's going on now in Donbass and along the Black Sea, it's a rolling war of attrition where it's simply brute force and a grinding effort to take little chunks of territory more and more and more. And the information in in those parts of the country, it's just far less important. Russia can abandon information entirely and still gain territory.
0: That's such a good point. I was also struck, like I expected there to be a larger element in this war of cyber attacks and more activity in the cyber domain, which I know is something that you look at as well prior to the 24th of February, Russia had carried out some larger scale, more successful type cyber operations in Ukraine, or allegedly Russia, let's say. And yet... Once the war actually broke out, that didn't seem to be a huge part of what was going on. How do you evaluate that? Or, you know, maybe things were going on and we don't know about it. Or if not, why was that not a bigger part of Russia's operations in Ukraine once the full-scale invasion commenced?
1: Again, you've put your finger on a great question that a lot of analysts believed that the early stages of this war would involve a burst of offensive cyber operations. Mm -hmm. Russia has a lot of capabilities in the domain, and there was a a sort of general expectation that any future conflict would lead off with a bombardment of cyberspace operations to to cause friction in the enemy military and seize up its government services and sort of paralyze its ability to organize a coherent And we just didn't see that. Mm -hmm. Russia has done some operations in cyberspace. It's not like it's been entirely inactive, but nothing like what we thought was coming, which would be a more sustained attack on Ukrainian networks and perhaps on, on European networks as well. Why hasn't it happened? Again, we're still in the of speculation, not only because cyber operations are inherently kind of a murky thing and it's hard to get reliable information, but also because this is a war and all wars require a lot of time to try to figure out what happened. I think there's a bunch of possible explanations. The first one was that Ukrainian defenses were quite good. Perhaps it's the case that, that Russia tried to launch operations against Ukrainian networks, but they came up against very capable defenders. And it's possible that those defenders profited from U.S. assistance. The United States has been, you know, they have publicly said that they've been helping Ukraine and that they've been cooperating in cyberspace with Ukraine for several years before the war. So maybe Russia came up against essentially a hard target. Another possible explanation is that Russia left Ukrainian networks alone because it figured it would need them. It didn't want to corrupt the communications that it was Mm -hmm. going to need to invade and occupy the country. Another possible explanation is maybe Russia's not as good as we thought they were. And maybe Russian cyber operators were as incompetent at the start of the war as Russian military forces. Then the last possible explanation is maybe serious cyber operations are just harder than we think we've been worried about so-called cyber pearl harbors for you know decades and it might be that serious cyberspace operations that do lasting damage especially cyber operations that do physical damage are really hard to pull off. They take a lot of money and skill and organization and dumb luck. And so most of what you see in cyberspace, most of the activities is closer to espionage where people are just trying to steal information or doing a little light sabotage. But these sort of big ticket, cyber attacks might just be harder than, than we assume. For a long time in, in the cybersecurity field, there's been this assumption that offense has the advantage, that it's easier to be an attacker in cyberspace than to be a defender. I don't know if that's true, especially when, not when we're talking about cyber operations in support of a big shooting war. It might be where uh, the defense has advantages in the digital domain, just like the defense has advantages in the physical domain. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, it's... It, This is something that I think that security folks and IR scholars are really going to have to tackle. Were our assumptions about cyberspace wrong? Or was this just a peculiar case? Once we get more information about the content of cyber operations, in cyber defences, maybe we'll start to generate some answers about that. But so far, as you said, we just haven't seen the kind of conflict that we expected.
0: That's fascinating. And I can definitely see analysts and scholars dissecting this for many years to come. We've heard also in the intelligence domain that US and British primarily, as far as I understand, have also been sharing intelligence with Ukrainian defence forces And if you want to carry out military operations on the ground, you actually, you really need good intelligence in order to do that well. For example, when the Ukrainian defense forces managed to sink the Moskva battleship, they'd actually received some intelligence from British intelligence forces in order to carry out that pretty significant operation. To what extent do you think that that sharing of intelligence with Ukrainian defense forces has actually really helped operations? Operations on the ground.
1: Yeah, so the the normal caveats apply. Uh, We're we're (laughs) all relying on on secondhand reporting, but if if we assume that the reports are more or less accurate, then what do we know? We know that British and American intelligence have assisted Ukraine with targeting Russian land forces and Mm. perhaps naval forces. There are also reports that that they were using uh, intelligence to target key Russian personnel though US officials have denied this. So what does that all mean? I think that at a macro level of the war itself, it might not be that important. I think that the the more important factors that have been driving the war so far are Russian blunders, sheer dogged Ukrainian resistance, and then a shift in Russian strategy towards, as I said, a grinding attrition battle. Mm -hmm. I think most of the war can be explained by those factors, and intelligence sharing is important, but at a micro level. I think- However, that intelligence sharing might have second order effects that are worth thinking about. Here's one. The Biden administration from the start has declared its its desire to assist Ukraine, to provide resources to Ukraine and and weapons, but not to put American boots on the ground. Mm. And President Biden has been very consistent about this throughout. In a sense, that puts the U.S. in a bind. Because at the same time, US leaders are talking about how bad Russia is and what an awful thing Russia is doing and how important this is for the future of not just Ukraine, but European and international security, while simultaneously declaring that we're not going to fight directly. In this sense, sharing intelligence can be a way of keeping critics at bay. We are providing Ukraine with things that matter guns, technology, financial support, and we're providing them intelligence, the Mm. thing that they need to target key Russian assets. It's a way, another way that political leaders can say, we're providing things of value that are helping Ukraine defend itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, that intersection with the importance of domestic
0: politics and the domestic environment. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate you being with me today and unpacking some of these kind of tricky and opaque issues. Thanks for joining me today on the
1: podcast. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music